Welcome to the Thousand Voices Podcast. My name is Muja Maskeri, founder and CEO of Thousand Eyes on Me, and I'm your host for this podcast series. Each week, you will hear stories of fearless leaders and entrepreneurs to get inspired and learn how to become a successful leader. The following episode is made in collaboration with Women in AI as part of a series of interviews for Women in AI Awards Australia and New Zealand 2022. Before talking about our guest's incredible story, I would like to make an announcement. At Thousand Eyes and Me, we are supporting a new initiative called Thousand Faces to go even further in our mission to support women. Thousand Faces is an exclusive investment club using carbon-negative art NFTs to finance female-led projects. We are combining art, technology, diversity, and the environment. You can join our club at www.thousandfaces.art and follow us on our social media to learn more about our investment areas and exciting news. Today, I have a very special guest from Australia with me on the show. Dr. Corey Stewart is founder and CEO of the Arm Hub, a non-for-profit company on a mission to digitally transform industry. The Arm Hub specializes in AI, robotics, and manufacturing, collaborating with industry and universities to modernize manufacturing practices, commercialize R&D, and build workforce capability. Corey has had a distinguished career and is a recognized leader in developing large-scale partnerships between industry, research institutions, governance, and community. Corey has previously held senior university appointments and government policy roles in industry development, the digital economy, create industries and innovation. Associate Professor Corey Stewart was awarded a Women in AI Australia New Zealand AI for Manufacturing Award. She won the first prize and she also won Women in Technology's Professional Technology Leader of 2022. Corey, I'm so glad you're joining us on the show. Welcome. Oh, thank you for having me. It's my, my pleasure to be here. Thank you. So can you tell me a little bit about what is Arm Hub and what is the activities that you have? Yeah, the Arm Hub stands for the Advanced Robotics for Manufacturing Hub. Obviously, easier said as Arm Hub. Um, and we are an independent not-for-profit company that really rolled out of collaborations between universities and industry to be able to be more agile in how it worked with industry to solve its technical challenges and to be able to commercialise at a faster pace than that that has been possible traditionally um, when partnering with universities. We also have a status in Australia called Australian Research Institute status, which is we've only recently been awarded, which is exciting for us which means alongside our commercial activities, um, helping businesses, we can also run research. So we view it as uh, industry can come to us. uh, And in Australia, it's a lot of small to medium enterprise, which is about companies with 200 staff or less. Um, Companies in manufacturing across industries, they can come to us and we can be like a one-stop shop for their innovation acceleration needs. 
So out of curiosity, what kind of modernizations do you do for the industries? Can you give us some examples? Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of, uh, say, existing industries and, and perhaps even old industries, like from, say, steel production, um, maybe through to agriculture, the, these kind of existing long-term industries, what we tend to do because they have a lot of existing infrastructure and processes is really look at how we can you know, refine and optimise their, their manufacturing processes or they just their production and development processes. So it could be installing robotics. Um, often it's looking at um, digitising things like quality assurance, um, like there might be something that they do that is a kind of health and safety risk. So we might look at strategies using technology and science to overcome some of those more tactical kind of approaches to innovation in existing businesses. We, we don't tend to do the absolute overhaul of a major business like that. We tend to work um, within their existing infrastructure to modernise it. And now that things like robotics is quite affordable, you know, putting in a suite of robotics and um, making sure they're providing you the data and the insight that you need as they go is, you know, incredibly achievable for, for big and, and small companies and existing infrastructure as much as new infrastructure. So that's one thing that we do. The other part is really working with our, you know, uh, deep tech startups um, that are, are new to the world and they're solving problems out there in industry. So these companies are often, you know, spin-outs that involve research or or even larger companies spinning out new companies um, with new technologies. They really need to get a technology roadmap, maybe meet some technology milestones for venture raising or investment raising and, you know, tread that path into a, either becoming a, a small to medium enterprise themselves and, you know, existing in a kind of ongoing business relationship or, you know, looking for that kind of five-year um, exit and, you um, off into the, the, the marketplace. Yeah, yeah. Actually, you just mentioned that you were raising, you know, funds and venture capital. I, I'm very curious and interested to know how did that happen for you? Because I know you raised a lot of money. I, I know that maybe the first round you raised like 18 million. Yes, yeah, right. right. So and we're then not, you we're not, recently had like 30 million. Yeah, this is probably good to explain right up. We're, we're probably not exactly what you think we are. As an in Australia, as an independent not-for-profit, what we've done to exist is we we have take we've received investment from uh, universities, um, we've received investment from government, and we have some investment from industry. But we're not we're not a venture in the sense that we're an independent company um, looking at kind of a growth trajectory like an SME, oh, like a sorry, a startup. We're a slightly we're like a public, a quasi-public institution. Um, providing services um, to meet industry's need that government and some private some private industry have decided that are, is really important to the infrastructure of Australia to make sure that manufacturing meet its needs. So um, we're quite ourselves. We're quite a different beast. We we didn't raise say through venture capital or eighteen million. We raised that through upfront investments from government and university and and some industry. Mm -hmm. Wow, thank you so much for this uh, precision. I think it's still a lot of money even for a nonprofit to raise. I know that Women is a nonprofit. <laughs> <laughs> we basically had funding from European Commission uh, once yeah. in a lifetime <laughs> and it was not at all close uh, to any of these yeah. numbers. So I'm, I'm just wondering how, how did this go for you? Did you 
I mean, how did you manage to raise this much money? How does it work, this conversation and discussions with the government? Was there any like challenges you faced for? Like, <laughs> yeah, I would love to know the story. Oh, look, the story is it, it was it's a long a long journey. It took um, I was um, kind of embedded in the univer in a university here when we decided that this this piece of infrastructure is is what what our country needs and perhaps particularly the region I am, which is in the in in Queensland, that. Uh, we needed uh, enough kind of capability so uh, that we could actually deliver the outcomes and we also exist and we rent a space which is a 2,000 square metre industrial warehouse that has companies co-located but we also have our own sort of maker space and some project space. So the, the money divided up amongst those stakeholders includes really operational costs for about four years of operation. So we really have contracts that mean that we will be delivering a certain number of outcomes for four years and, of course, we'll to have like an ongoing kind of delivery relationship with our key stakeholders, which is looking good. At year two, I feel like we're, we're well on that path. If you break it down, a lot of the university investment was for ensuring that key talent was made available to start to solve these problems using a different kind of commercial format. So we run the projects the fact that we run projects and we're in AI and robotics means that we've got to deal with all of the nice things like big insurance, running technical teams, having, you know, equipment and a site to look after. Um, so unfortunately, 18 million is quite, quite modest in that scale. So I think it's probably just reminiscent of like the 18 million may sound like a lot, but when I compare what uh, maybe uh, we're only a really, really modest company compared to what I like to think is our big brothers and sisters in other countries. So we've really modelled ourselves on the UK catapult centres and the US manufacturing institutes. And there's a good example. So when I was um, at the final stages and we had been an, we'd been announced that we were getting funding from the state government, then that was a very long and interesting process in itself, our namesake, the Advanced Robotics for Manufacturing Institute, we didn't even know it was in the making, as one of the US manufacturing institutes got announced and, and their beginning funding was $250 million. So um, uh, it kind of took the wind out of my sails for, you know, maybe an hour where I thought, oh, my God, um, I thought we were, we're okay, we're going to do okay, we're going to be able to do things at a reasonable scale with $18 million. And then And then it was announced, I think, just a day before ours went public that, the um, Institute in the US started off with $250 million. So, <laughs> Yeah, there's always like a bigger fish. <laughs> in the there always is. But you, know, but you also raised like another additional $30 million in, in project yeah, funding. So part of our, that's right. Part of our business model is we, Australia has probably like many other countries, there's different like the Horizon funding, etc. There's different sources of in, investment and ways to get partnerships that help companies or, you know, supply chains or collaborations de-risk investment. And so some of those are research funds, some of we call industry funds, like they might come through government, they might be venture capital funds, or they could be just private, you know, company funding. We, to deliver the projects that we delivered in our first two years, so, well, yeah, so our first two years, it was $40 million. Our first year was actually $30 million. We did really, we did so well in our first year. Um, we didn't quite do that every year. So um, 
across the two years, it was $40 million in extra funds to deliver the projects that we, you know, we, what we were doing with industry. So we, we provide, a, we've got like a core capability, but then obviously to go out and, and get the work done and build the partnerships and investment needed, that's also a piece of work that we do with industry. And that, that's where that money, um, that's what that money does. Yeah, I, I'm dying to ask you, how did you convince that three ministers you were talking about <laughs> in the, in, in, actually in your, um, uh, in the text that I had received for the award? Oh. Yeah, you, you, you mentioned to just get 7.7 million from the Queensland yes. government. You had to convince three ministers. <laughs> so well, can you tell that story? Oh, yes. Well, this is a story of, you know, ministerial change in, in government. So, you know, we started off and, you know, you you know it's possible, but ministers, uh, you, you know, they need to be your champions and they need to see that they can get their outcomes um, through what you're proposing. So you need you need to go on that journey with them and uh, and, and ensure they're, they're going to basically make it their own opportunity. So we did that and uh, three times the ministers changed uh, and it's like starting back. Oh, so it was for the same sort of the ministry, but the person, the person was changing. Was changing. The minister was yeah. Changing. Okay. So everything was starting again. Yeah, so okay. the relationship <laughs> and the, the discussion and the, you know, they, they all then want to make it their own in their, in their own way. So that was, it was extraordinary. You sort of, <laughs> you, you think, oh, can you, know, can you keep it up? It took us, we did take us two years. We, we put in a proposal two years before we actually had the funding announcement and, you know, you had to build the opportunity the whole time because you couldn't, you know, you couldn't let it fade away. So you had to keep this pipeline of business, in, you know, in play. is you know, not complicated. Um, there's an art in there somewhere of, of something, whether it's patience or, or making things work. Um, interestingly in Australia, at the federal level since then, um, in the industry portfolio as well, we've had a succession of four new ministers in a time we were working with them and we did have proposals, but it's not quite the same story. And then the whole government has actually recently changed in Australia. So it seems like it was good training for what may be an ongoing future of constant change in government ministers. Yeah. Can you tell me about the Made With AI platform that you created? Um, yeah. So that that platform is actually what we were having a really deep discussion with the federal ministers. I said that they keep keep changing. So um it is a is a combination of how we at ArmHub were working with our partners to deliver a plat like a, a significant platform to accelerate the adoption of AI and the, the the pipeline of AI talent into industry. So it had programs in it that were like a technical accelerator sprints programs that had venture capital investment, you know, for companies that were coming through that could. Um, be picked up. So we are not a business accelerator, but a technical accelerator. Um, so we had had programs that were doing that, and we've trialed that with our a, a program already, which was really successful. And we should have a couple of announcements about that a couple of days. That's where we package up the capability in the Arm Hub with our partners, and we invite companies to pitch how they would use that capability and and what additional capability they might need to realise the AI outcome that they that will take their product or or their service uh, forward. Um, so that that was a great kind of move forward for us, and what additional capability they might need to realise the AI outcome that they that will take their product or or their service forward. Um, so that that was a great kind of move forward for us. So I read that you had basically created this platform with the uh, Honourable Melissa Price Minister 
Minister for Defense Industry, Minister uh-huh. for Science and Technology, and watched by over 300 people. So this is, yes. this is the, the same platform, right? Made in made with AI, right? Oh yeah. So um, it's a couple of sorry, it's a couple of different things. So that that's how we kicked it off. So we we kicked it off with this large scale webinar with one of the ministers, <laughs> one of the first ministers, um, and with a lot of the leaders before about, before she changes. Before, <laughs> yeah. before she changed, <laughs> and we thought a lot of the national kind of Australian leaders in AI. And what what was actually it was a discussion. It was a webinar. And it really set the scene for us and, and I think across the country that sort of said these are the critical things around AI, particularly for small to medium enterprises, and there was a focus on manufacturing. So, you know, p- these weren't the sexy topics to be talking about pre-COVID, <laughs> but, um, you know, these are the, the, the things that are on everybody's mind now about because we, we've got some urgent kind of sovereign challenges like most countries to plug the gaps when we can't get supply chains or there's conflict or war or whatever. So um, these are the things that we needed to deal with. Under those kind of circumstances too, we've been much more innovative as a country, like joining the dots. We built a national network of all this capability. We we made sure that we knew where the experts were so that when businesses had challenges, they didn't have to uh, go and knock on the door of all the key people across the nation or even internationally. They, they kind of had a network that would be like a, a live reporting wire saying so-and-so is here, this is where you'll get that, you know, what kind of team needs to be built, where are you? Um, we were just trying to make that service so efficient. So we started off with this big webinar series. The end result was what I was saying to you was a package of products and um, services that we would t- we took to industry under the MADE um, with AI banner. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's so fascinating. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> so you, you've been really involved in basically, you've been dealing with a lot of, you know, policymakers, government, you worked as a senior innovation policy and political advisor in government. What were you advising the government on and what did you learn from these experiences? Well, I think really, um, the time that I spent in uh, government has really given me the insights to like all the processes that are required. And when you're in government, you do get to see an awful lot. You you kind of like are the gateway of a whole lot of information and you start to understand how business is done and you cease to get as frustrated by it as I think many people would if they're on the outside and you can't sort of see that the truth is you really have very little control. You've just got your own tactics and strategies and and networks and know-how to to lean on. So probably the reason why I could uh, laugh after having after going through so many ministers was it you know it's not personal it's difficult there's nothing that I could have done to control any of that um, you just you just need to keep going if, no, if you've got feeling. the opportunity to keep going because I think it's relying on the fact that you're addressing an idea you're addressing a problem which which is a real problem and you know uh, it's been quite important for me to fall in love with the problem and solving the problem and not not in love with my idea or technology so that we we have sort of really gone about making a dent in the issue that I guess, you know, those ministers are going to be trying to solve for some time. So that's what's given me, I think, a, a measure of patience and confidence to be able to do what I've done now is, is the years that I've spent um, trying to be on the inside of a lot of those processes um, and make them happen or make sense out of them and, and really to try and I've always had a real uh, personal belief, you know, like, 
I just want to see things happen. I don't want things to constantly stall. And, and, and one thing about being in policy is that you never, ever get to sort of celebrate an outcome because, you know, it, you, the, you do that work and it might come out in a paper or it might be a way something's funded, but, you know, you are a service and it's sort of invisible. And by the time the outcome comes, it's so many years <laughs> off and down the track or it's, or it's gone in another direction you get this idea that, you know, you're part of this big machine and, and you try and make a contribution. But the Arm Hub is really me going, okay, I know how these things work. This time on this project, whether I was in government or, or even in university, which is also really a big public institution, I, I wanted to see it happen and I thought I better get my hands on the wheel and I better get out there and do it myself and walk the walk. The walk. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Walk the walk, yeah. <laughs> so you basically have been... Watching, I assume, the regulations for AI as well. Uh, I mean, my question is that how do you see the current policymakers internationally or even your in, in, in Australia making policies and regulations for AI? What, what is your vision on that? Yeah, um, it's a great, great question because where I sit, there's a lot of, because we, we do a lot of very practical implementation. And I think what's been so exciting about watching these larger discourses from the and, and regulation pieces and frameworks, and even now I think I'm starting to see more about where they have applied it and they're assessing how it worked across basically the EU and, and then locally here in Australia. We're seeing some good examples come out of our national scientific organisation, CSIRO. Um, as well as a company, uh, like a, a research collective called Trusted Autonomous Systems. They have, uh, you know, they've developed a very successful method that's gone global around um, ethical AI and defence. So, um, so we, yeah, definitely watching it. Uh, it's, it's exciting to see that this legal and governance part is at play because it's most often the part that's holding up industry. So we, we might have the technology, we might have even the talent and the know-how, but if we can't actually implement and there's not a regulatory framework or there's no confidence in the regulatory framework, um, things will never never come to bear or never come to be. And that, to be honest, is often the effect that we find I'm sure this is a global experience, but it's because it can be administered at, you know, if um, global, national, district or, um, you know, local levels, depending on what it is, it's, it can be really frustrating to get that legal and governance piece basically meeting the expectations of the times. So let's hope they can do it. I am not an expert in the regulation piece, but I think it's probably still going to lag behind um, what we're looking for. So I do hope it, it continues to advance rapidly um, and we get those frameworks in place. I do understand from our technical teams working on some, like trialling some of the ethical frameworks that have been put in place or even some of the reporting frameworks that um, there a lot of them are still quite obscure, right? Uh, they're still quite broad and you could, you could um, shoehorn many things into those those practical solutions. So at the practical end, I do think there's probably a lot of detail and there's probably just a whole culture and generation of people from people on boards right down to the AI um, analysts that need to basically get the experience under their belt of um, reporting on, on AI in different ways and un understanding how it will be regulated. I'm of the view, though, that 
AI for when we talk about what AI is used for, there are things that we will really benefit from from AI. So and and regulating that is very good. Of course, there's some real dystopian potential futures with AI and, and how it might be adopted. So you know, I think ultimately. Uh, my position is that, you know, I think AI is out there. Um, it's it's happening now, so it's up to us as individuals, collectives and groups um, to take the responsibility and shape it into the future alongside, say, this, this, this governance process. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely true. Why manufacturing? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I am myself uh, from background and in industrial engineering. I remember like the things that I was doing and we were basically a few women out of the whole group in the class. And and I was like, always asking myself, okay, why, why am I doing this again? <laughs> <laughs> and I ended up never actually working in industrial engineering, then switched to finance and business. Mm. But it sounds to me... If, should be like my experience very masculine environment and industry maybe not many women in your in your school were there or in the industries you've been working yeah just tell me why did you choose manufacturing so I didn't go through um you know that engineering path to be doing what I'm doing um so my my journey has been through innovation and discourse and creative industry so design related to, to you know manuf- you know human-centered design and manufacturing process which I would find that there are quite a lot of women engaging in this space but so the reason for manufacturing for me was that it's the most urgent thing that the nation needs to be doing and someone's got to get in and get this job done and we believed and we do <laughs> we got we, we, we've been backed well for it a uh, really important capability that just needed to, I felt and, and got the support that needed to be brought together in a slightly different way to actually realise the outcomes that, you know, industry and the nation were looking for. So it was very much that it's the thing that needs to be done, not because I uh, have a long, deep passion and account for manufacturing. Having said that, though, I I grew up on a property and I think I've been a maker, you know, so we've gone through, like you, an industrial design or design to make things. I so as in my in my journey there, so I think being in a manufacturing environment, I find quite inspiring and delightful. Um, yes, there's a lot of big big construction, but there's also very much like there's nanotechnologies and in the medical space, there's quite a few women in particular doing you know hundreds of women working on you know making the next um, synthetic ear or um, manufacturing you know new types of skin or vaccines or you know medical devices so I find that it's such a diverse field even in things like the aerospace industry there's a whole lot of women who are working on the fabrics that go into aerospace industry uh, wings and there it seems to be like there's to be honest, like there's little clusters of where women seem to want to work. But overall, there's no doubt that manufacturing, you know, really does remain uh, a male-dominated space. And uh, in Australia, it's often, you know, males over 50 have had the careers in manufacturing because we we used to, in the 1960s, have about 30% of our GDP was manufacturing. And right now it's only 6%. I like to think um, it's also it's the right six to six percent. It's the high value add 
niche markets that are global that that we now can manufacture into. We we don't do a lot of mass manufacture because we historically and and I would say probably continue to to not be able to compete on cost. Mm, wow, what, all the things you said, I'm kind of sold. You know, <laughs> maybe I should do that too. <laughs> Yeah, why not? I mean, look, manuf- <laughs> I'm recruiting manufacturers all the time. But um, I think, uh, you know, what, one thing I do enjoy about the group that we've put together and, and we started with a small group, but it seems to have amplified a, a lot of, the, you know, more people but still in the same cohorts of people in terms of the expert teams we work with. We, we do have engineers and uh, megatronics experts as well, but we have designers in the team, quite a lot of human-centred design, um, solution providing, where they're doing things like uh, digital interfaces for robotics, cobotics work, so how do humans work with robots, really important at this time. That's probably where the whole... What is the word? It's called cobotics? Um, cobotics, which is a sort of short way of saying robotics. collaborative robotics. So. Oh, I love that. Where you can work side by side with robots, but that's about understanding how people want to work and what people need as tools. It's not so much uh, and how that would work. So that's a design challenge as much as it is and a workforce challenge as much as it is actually a, a technical engineering challenge. And, of course, you know, working with the business schools and, and experts in new business models and servitization and all those things that companies need to be able to really think through their product and, and the success of their company. So we've managed to diversify what would be a traditional manufacturing um, outfit into something that's much broader. You are a founder, a CEO today. How did that happen? Like what is the basically the journey you took So you have reached to this position today that you're running a very successful, I would say, outstanding nonprofit organization out there. Yeah, I mean, I didn't think that, uh, you know, I didn't set out to to run necessarily a, a robotics company or a not-for-profit, but I, there are there are definitely um, kind of key. Yeah, I can imagine like at, at 14 years old, you were not saying, oh, I really want to go into manufacturing <laughs> and I want to be, and I want to deal with three ministers in a row in four, <laughs> you know, two years. <laughs> no, I'm, that wasn't the dream you had at 14, 15 years old. <laughs> no, and I don't think, um, you know, maybe I've done it because uh, sometimes what I've done is probably, you know, been not the sexy thing to do, you know, you sort of, you find, you find a way. But I did, I did have experience in um, when I was working in the broader innovation and creative industry space. That That's where my traditional training is from, where uh, it's also a very high SME industry. It uses high levels of in- innovation and there are lots of not-for-profits. So um, in some of my roles, observing things like anywhere from our big um, state theatres Um, and their boards right down through running, you know, a program of, uh, you know, investment program for, you know, over 50 small to medium creative enterprises then that were all not-for-profits. So I sort of, I'd had a, I understood, like, I didn't know I was learning this, you know, specifically, but I really did have the the deep knowledge about what a, a not-for-profit, you know, what it means to run a not-for-profit you know, which is constantly ch- chasing investment and <laughs> influence. And, and then uh, and I did understand government when I came into, you know, you know going, going through and doing the, a professorship too. So the university, I think, was the bravest one to keep me, you know, in and out of the university. So <laughs> they're the ones I think that don't quite always know what they got, but they, they sort of played along with me for, for a while, which was 
Do you do you consider yourself a sort of a rare profile yes. in the industry and a position that you're performing? Yes, I think I am very rare. Um, and sometimes I just want to be like everyone else. So, you know, you sort of, you know what your path is and you, you know what you need to do next. And, oh, maybe that's a fantasy I have about some other people. Like they seem to have really set understanding about, well, uh, this year I'll do this and next year it'll, I need to do this and the following year maybe that's what has to, you know, I'll be doing that. I, I haven't had that. But at the same time, yeah, I've, I've definitely taken the path of saying yes to opportunities or, or chasing down challenges that I think are worthwhile and it's led me here, yeah. What's the challenge that you're facing on a daily basis today? Uh, oh, you know, how do you how do you start that? <laughs> I feel like um, as a CEO, you know, you you are the you're the end point for all challenges, but you've you've got to have really good good people around you, and so I think that's good. I've really that's really happened, and um, so that's the influence of the the wider group and our executive team. I think the challenge is always making sure people understand what you do and, and why you do it. And it seems like it's uh, it's never enough explanation <laughs> about who you are and how you work. And um, as you said, well, you see, we, we, we do spend some time on making sure we're present on key, you know, platforms and social media because, you know, you can't have individual conversations with with everybody. Um, so I'd say it's constantly communicating. And I, I look, I enjoy communicating, but... It's, it's constantly, you know, making sure you, you're giving people the information that's useful to them and then also, you know, making sure all your stakeholders and your future stakeholders are aware of what they should be. Mm, yeah, communication and sharing your vision, that's, that's always, you know, a big challenge and that's why so, so many actually, you know, businesses come out of it like, oh, we can help you with, <laughs> with your marketing and PR, but yeah, I, I see that. Yes, they, oh. yeah, they they do. I think that's probably it's been a big a big learning that you know how to get through <laughs> how to get through what everyone's offering you and understand what's of value and and what's what's not. It's an interesting world that we live in when we've got so many channels yeah. coming at us. Yeah. So you won the AI for Manufacturing Awards of Women AI Australia New Zealand 2022. How did you feel about it? Oh, look, I was surprised and extremely delighted. Um, I feel like I got a, some encouragement from one of our partners to, to apply and I thought, well, you know, that's a, that's a good sign. I will, I'll carve out some time and make it happen. So I, I was really thrilled because we've been in COVID, which in Queensland, uh, <laughs> as some will know, probably hasn't been as bad as in some of the areas of Australia where they've had a lot longer lockdown. I think Melbourne actually had globally you know, one of the longest lockdowns, and uh, but no one had seen anyone, and and we certainly hadn't engaged on a national platform. So I met so many women doing so many amazing things that I would have never met before, and I would never have got to understand, and I would have probably never been taken the time unless I had that awarded the experiences that have followed from it, like this one, to really look under the hood at some new things that have been really deep in my understanding uh, about what we can do and and what what others are doing in the field and how it's tr- everything's transforming so quickly. Yeah, so it's been really educative and enjoyable. Good to see that. And did you expect that? Did you expect to win? No, I, um, I didn't expect to win so much so as I didn't write the speech. <laughs> the 
can they tell you to write just in case you win? Uh, like Oscars, have a little, you know, note in your pocket just in case. I know, let that be the lesson. You never know. So you should always write that speech. Yeah. But anyway. Funny, somebody else also said that. I I was interviewing another winner oh, really? and he was like, you know what? That's what I learned. You always think you should win. <laughs> to prepare that speech. Yeah, well, um, there you go. You, you you should never discount that you <laughs> you may not win. You may never underestimate yourself. That's yeah. right. And I think, well, that's the problem, I think, that, that, that um, look, we all have it. Like what is it, imposter syndrome is a very real thing or we all think that, you know, everyone else is doing something more amazing than, than perhaps we would ever do. And I think that the, the truth is we're all on a journey and we're at different stages of it and we've all, you know, I feel like if I could do what I've done, so could anyone else. So, yeah, watch out, prepare that speech because you, you might be you up there next. Um, and I think I, I think, I managed to thank my children who had endured many dinners with a, a kind of proxy other child called the arm hub <laughs> in the room. <laughs> and not getting jealous. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I know. Well, they were a little bit too, a little bit too young to get jealous, but you know, um, they certainly they certainly had to have some compromises. It's always how many children do you have? I have two. I have two. They are now they are now seven and nine, so okay. they feel like they rapidly Lovely. get older, but. Don't we all? <laughs> what what do you, what kind of toys do you buy for them? I'm assuming like a lot of maker stuff. <laughs> oh, you know, I this is interesting. My my son is um, really adamant that he he's just going to be a professional soccer player. So um, I think that the thing that my husband and I managed to introduce him to with vague interest was how they collect AI or you know big data around uh, the scoring and you know, the, of soccer games and, and how they, you know, coaches use data to and AI to, you know, um, train <laughs> train people. We're like, are we going to have to give him some sort of backup capability? It was, kind of, it was interesting for a while, but I'm, I mean, hoping it sticks. But, no, at the moment it's, um, it's, it's, it's soccer only, thanks, Mum. And my daughter, though, you know, I think she, she might, she might venture there, so she's pretty interested in almost everything, but pulling things apart, and she, she wants to know. So we'll we'll see. Maybe. Oh, lovely. So maybe you can connect her to the Women AI local chapter. In <laughs> That's <Australia>. right. <laughs> I'll um, get her warmed up. Intern a little bit. With yeah, that. exactly. That'd be great. You can have a have a, a seven year old. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure if that's your daughter, for sure she's going to run the whole chapter at like... Well, she already runs the house, so um, we'll see. <laughs> oh, perfect. <laughs> yeah, amazing. Wow. So I, actually, let's put it this way. If you wanted to talk to any woman, any young girl, like your daughter, encouraging them to up, to chase the opportunities in technology in AI and be interested in that what would you tell them yeah I I feel like everyone would say this but I'm gonna say it because maybe they wouldn't um like d don't worry about um not being a good enough for anything just really try and explore and enjoy all the mo you know the moments as you're having them and and the opportunities that come to you when they come to you and I think try not to be doubtful because uh, it can really be crippling and I, no one else is thinking it probably except for you so you know 
uh, you can do it is probably what I would I would say. And you don't have to be somehow uniquely brilliant, in my opinion. You just need to to be interested and and patient and committed. Mm. Yeah, and I would love to quote yourself saying that just fall in love with the problem. <laughs> Yes, I think that that helps. <laughs> <laughs> that helps. <laughs> Amazing. Maybe, maybe that's the thing. I think it's a slightly harder journey if, um, you know, and I think in academics, for you know, academic life is a really difficult life at some level, you know, because you you're you're putting forward new ideas um, as a kind of experience like like a startup possibly but you know even a startup really needs to fall in love with the problem <laughs> rather than their solution. Um, And academics just need to keep coming up with the ideas and and maybe not fall in love with them. I think it's it's the problem is what keeps staying. And if you can keep solving problems for people, and, you know, society or, or whatever it is, it, there there is some endurant enduring value in that for for more than just yourself. So maybe that's said from someone with a kind of creative industries background too. Um, it's kind of delightful to solve other people's problems. It's a little bit easier. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Corey. It was such a pleasure speaking to you today. Yeah, look, it's delightful. And look, congratulations on setting up the the global women in AI. And um, thank you for making it happen. You've really helped Australia come come forward, and and people like me have a platform. Ah, oh, it was so lovely, Corey. Thank you so much. Thousand Voices is a production of Thousand Eyes on Me. It is hosted by myself, Mujan Askari. Our supervising director is Aruna Patam. Our producer is Raul Kumar. Our technical director is Ashish Mittal. And our design director is Nusha Askari. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Thousand Voices podcast. Join our community to find out more about our guests and our leadership programs on our website, www.thousandeyeson.me. Until next time.